The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we're thankful now for the chance to sit beneath your word, beneath your hand, as you take it and teach it to us. I pray that you would now send your spirit here to kind of gather us together. I myself feel a little bit scattered right now. I pray that you would draw attention to your word, draw us to a place of mental rest, just to sit and hear you speak and teach. Would you use this time now to grow us up and build your church? We put that on you, knowing that that's your desire, to build your people up, to do us good, and to honor your name here. So accomplish that work this morning, we ask. Thank you, Lord. Amen. If you are familiar with the Old Testament book of Judges, you probably know the refrain from the last several chapters. It, in fact, is the, the final verse of the the book, the last statement on all those disastrous times, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The end. No king in Israel. You read Judges and you think, man, what a mess. These people need a king. Something fierce. Wow. It is it's a mess. And you read that, it's, it's designed to set you up for Samuel, where the first kings come. Samuel and then Saul and David, first kings. But you're also supposed to read Judges and think, hold on, this is Israel. They actually do have a king already. The Lord himself is their king. The, the problem, in fact, is not that they don't have a human king. The problem is that they refuse to follow the king they've been given, God Driven by their passions, they denied God's authority and instead became a law unto themselves and did any and everything that seemed right to them in their own eyes. And the result was absolute disaster. That's the problem in Judges. And Jude warns us of the same thing in our passage for today. In the previous two weeks in the book of Jude, that we've been here for two weeks now, we've seen In the beginning, Jude lays out for us our identity in Christ and then calls us to contend for the true faith that was once for all given to us. A necessary call because there were some in their midst then and even today who attempt to hold on to the name Christian, who claim to be saved and in some way have have appeared to be, have shown something like the Christian life or the Christian experience, and they certainly affirm a bunch of basic doctrine, but they've actually moved away from God's authority and towards what they see as a new and improved alternative version of the faith. Not the the old one once for all given, but something that's new and improved. One that puts self at the center and is more palatable for people what people actually want, what we actually approve of. That's why people do such a thing, you know. They don't 
set aside the old and move on to something new because they feel like they have to, but they feel like it's better. It's new and improved. It, it matches with what their eyes approve of. They look inside of themselves and notice what they feel. They look around at the world and see what the world says and how the world expresses itself, and they become convinced that some new version of the faith would be a better and kinder and more loving and more appealing one. It would be progress. It would, it would move us on away from what is old and at least stodgy and stuffy, if not downright bigoted and narrow-minded. We want to leave that behind, leave behind God's declared message and move on to something new and improved that we all prefer. Or as Jude puts it, calling it like it really is, they pervert the grace of God into a license for sensual sin, and by their behavior they reject the authoritative rule of Christ. That was verse 4 from Jude. And today in verses 5 through 10, he elaborates on that core accusation, showing us where it leads and calling us back. So I'm going to read the passage, and I'm going to draw out two observations. And as I do so, keep in mind, I'm going to say this again, but keep in mind, Jude has a lot of heat in the center section of it, but it's a heat directed at those other ones who would draw the beloved ones of God away. And so it's not heat directly directed at the church, but at those who would destroy the church. So this is not actually coming at you quite like that, it's a, but it's a warning to us, but it's, it's an alert. It's, it's got some heat to it. So when you hear that, keep, the, keep this in mind as you hear the passage. I'm going to read verses 5 to 10 and then draw two observations. I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, the Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. When the archangel Michael contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Pause there. Jude verses 5 to 10. Two observations from it. Here's the first. It's long, so I'm going to repeat it. It's long as I couldn't figure out a way to make it shorter, but I'll say it several times so you can get it all. 
Rejecting God's authority to go one's own way is not progress. It's the ancient path that leads to destruction. Rejecting God's authority to go one's own way is not progress. It's the ancient path that leads to destruction. There's no progress. There's actually regress. It's going way back to where we started all in the garden with the desire to move away and do your own thing. It's the ancient path that leads to destruction. Verse 5 begins very graciously because he's writing, after all, to God's beloved, like I said. This verses 1 and 3 recalls us that, and he reminds us that God is speaking to us in love to, to help us. And he's gracious as he reminds his readers of things that they knew, or at least used to know. And, and he doesn't mean you know these things or you knew these things from reading the Bible. He means you were taught these things as you were discipled in your faith. And it's helpful to kind of clarify that because that explains why some of the things mentioned here are not in the Bible. It would be like if I made a point right now about the character of God. Here as I'm talking, I made a point about the character of God by referring to what's said about Oslin in the Chronicles of Narnia. He is not safe, but he's good. Some of you know that. Oslin's described as not safe, but good. That sort of thing, using something else to make a point about God or about biblical truth, that's what's going on in Jude often. It shows up twice in our passage. Verses 6 and 9 are not in the Bible. But there are in other well-known books written about things that are in the Bible. And Jude's readers would have known those works like some of us know the Chronicles of Narnia. But if you've never heard of Narnia or Oslin, or if you've never heard of these books that Jude's referring to, no, no matter, because you can still understand the point he's making, a point that matches what's said elsewhere in the Bible. You can still understand. So what we're going to do is we're going to just work on the verses as they are presented to us and try to understand the points that Jude is making. We're not going to dive into all the backstory about the other books that he's referring to. We're just going to take the verses as they come and understand the point he's making. So Jude lays in front of us here three supporting stories. Jude loves sets of three, as we'll see. Three stories supporting his verse 4 claim that these people who are among us, they are, they are ungodly, that is, they are immoral, and they've given themselves to sexual sin as they disobey God, and they are destined for condemnation, not for blessing, not for improvement, not for better life, but for condemnation, in fact. And how do we know that? Verse 5 first case in point, because it's just like what happened in the Exodus. People of God saved out of Egypt by God the Son, in fact. And technically, he's not known as Jesus until you get to the New Testament birth. But it's interesting to notice that God the Son, the Lord Jesus, was active in the Old Testament even, even then to save people then. That's not the point, though. It's not the point about Jesus. The point is what happens next, what happens afterwards. You would look at the landscape, if you were there in the day of the Exodus, you would look at the landscape and you would see over here are the Egyptians, not God's people, and over here then are the rescued ones, the saved ones, the set free ones, God's people. And God did that. God did that graciously. He did it powerfully. He did it kindly. And yet, 
they were destroyed because they did not believe. Who? The Egyptians? No. The people from this group, from the rescued ones, from among that group, many we find out. You, you can read the Old Testament, you see this. Read the book of Hebrews and you see this. Many in that group, they were the ones saved out of. They, they bore the name of the people of God over top of them, but they did not actually believe. And we know that because they constantly grumbled and they turned away and they refused to obey God when he said, go into the land. They looked with their eyes and what they saw was daunting. And believing what they saw, they said no, and they turned away. They had the name of God over them, but their hearts were far from him. They did not believe. And so the Lord destroyed them. And the angels who had positions in heaven, they fell, became demons. They were placed there by God. It was his decision, his power, his kindness to give him such authority, such a standing, such a status. They were spiritual, heavenly authorities, and they said no to that, and they wanted something else. God had set them in a place that was good, and they said, no, we know better. And they moved away and chose something else, and the result now, they are bound in darkness until the final day of judgment and their full destruction which is similar to the situation with Sodom and Gomorrah and the neighboring towns. Verse 7, they indulged in sexual immorality, pursuing unnatural desire, and the result? They underwent a punishment of eternal fire. Fire came down from heaven and consumed the cities, and the land itself was a smoldering sight. The ground smoked. A great warning. Now, those three stories were known to Jude's readers. He doesn't bring them up to teach those stories. He brings them up as examples, as case studies. He's bringing up something that's, that's known, and, and he's pointing out verse 4 and at the back end of these, verse 8, he repeats his accusation. These false teachers, they are presenting something as if it is new and improved, a different faith, not the one once delivered. And they rationalize sensuality and sexual sin, and they disobey God, not trusting in him. Guys, that's not new and improved. It's not progress. It's very, very old and very, very devastating that attitude and that approach towards God is as old as the hills and God has always dealt with it in one way, judgment. Case in point, case in point, case in point. Don't go there. No matter how strong the world's pressure, no matter how slick or cool or enlightened or progressive and modern the voices of the new faith seem, it is the ancient path of destruction with just modern road signs hung on to disguise it. We've been there before. Don't go back. So that's the point he's making here. One that we need to hear today in, in many circles. This is not written to the false teachers. It's written to us who may perhaps 
be in some way enticed by the message. It sounds, doesn't it, a little bit attractive? I mean, if, if what they're offering, it seems very often it's very intellectual. There are people with a lot of letters after the name that talk like this. And it certainly lines up with what the world says. It would make my life a whole lot easier in my interaction with my neighbors if I could agree with this. If I could go this route and still hold the name Christian but agree with everything they say, it would make, it would make the conversations at work a whole lot easier. There would be some release and some relief, even me personally, because some of the tensions that I feel, don't we all kind of want? Kind of want some of the sensual offers. And if I could have that, if it, if it was just so that it was possible and right, and if God actually did want me to feel good in all the different ways that I kind of am drawn to, it would be, it would be an awesome offer. Pleasurable relief and release and social acceptance. There's a bit of an attractive bait there in Jude's trying to show you the hook. Oh yeah, there's nice bait. And there's a hook. It leads to destruction, don't bite. That's the message. Coming to us, the assumption is who haven't yet bitten, but see it dangling in front. It's not hard to look around the, the I'll say, quote-unquote, Christian world and see out there this alternative message or some, some version of it. There's... There's a, lot of, there's a lot on offer out there. Don't bite. That's his warning. But it's probably worth pausing for just a moment to say a little bit more about verse 7, given how this particular issue of homosexuality is an especially big one in today's world and therefore is an especially big part of this often presented alternative new and improved faith. It's a big issue. So I'll say a little more about that. I'm going to try to do so carefully here because there's a lot that one could say about this issue. I'm not going to say everything. I'm just going to try to kind of hold to this verse. And I'm going to try to be, I certainly hope to be gracious, but kindly clear. There have always been some people, especially today, who tried to argue that the Bible does not condemn homosexual behavior at all, or that the Bible doesn't condemn loving, consensual homosexual behavior. And in claiming that, part of the argument is that Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed by God because of other sins, not homosexual behavior. Certainly. Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed in a supernatural way, and so there's writing in the Bible about it, and there's writing in other literature about it, because everybody knew it. And in the Bible and in the other writings, there are a host of other sins listed that Sodom and Gomorrah were guilty of. But the stated problem here in verse 7 is clearly sexual immorality. That's what it says. Not lack of hospitality 
or great pride or violence. Sexual immorality is the problem, further clarified as literally the pursuit of other flesh, as in other than what God tells men they should be pursuing. All through the scriptures, it's clear men are to pursue female flesh. You can tell, even from Genesis 19, where, where Lot comes up with an awful, an awful solution to the problem. The, the story is in Genesis 19. As the men of the city come pounding on his door to, to have the male messengers that he's sheltering in his house, Lot sees the main problem and offers his daughters as an alternative, which is an awful solution, but it tells you what he sees the problem to be. Men, he says, don't desire these men. Here, have some women instead. An awful alternative, but it tells you what the problem is. Men pursuing men. As it is everywhere else in the Bible, homosexual behavior is sexual immorality and therefore sin. Now, as a very important aside, very important aside, we must note the difference between homosexual activity, same-sex activity, and homosexual attraction, same-sex attraction. There's a very important distinction. There's a big line between those two words, activity and attraction. It's the same distinction, the same line we draw in everything else in the Bible where there is a difference between sin and attraction to sin. The word we use there is temptation. Sin and temptation to sin, there's a big line between the two. Temptation to sin is not sin. Jesus was tempted in every way, same as us, but did not sin. So with the language of our day, and we could use this language, I suppose, but the language of our day is same-sex attraction. We in the church would probably be better off talking about same-sex temptation because you change that little word, it kind of clarifies for us what's going on. And it helps us to express to others when we're trying to explain the Bible's viewpoint on things. It helps explain how the Bible sees what's going on, how, what we're talking about. Same-sex temptation. Some feel the pull on them towards the same sex as them. We all feel all kinds of temptations. All kinds of pulls on us, all sorts of various attractions. And most of us, about most of those things, can say, I never chose this. I, I, I never consciously embraced it. The sets of temptations that I have and that you have, they all came very naturally to me. And as far back as I can remember, most of them were just there. I don't ever consciously choosing, saying, I'm going to do this, I'm going to be drawn to this, I'm going to be pulled or bent in this way. It's just always been there from birth, as long as I can remember. But the fact that it's always been there from birth, as long as I can remember, is no proof whatsoever if it's right or wrong. It just is. I need something from outside of me to tell me what's right and wrong. Because, in fact, the Bible tells us that we all are fallen creatures with a bent, even broken natural instincts and desires and hearts. 
We believe this. We believe in original sin. And its effects on us mean that we are born with some attractions that are sinful and must be turned from, not given into. And feeling very strongly doesn't change that. All of us are bent. We're, we're all in that boat together. About a whole host of things. And maybe some of us then also feel same-sex tempted. Sodom and Gomorrah, verse 7 is not about what happens to you, is not about what happens to you when you feel same-sex tempted. Same-sex attracted. It's about what happens to a person who decides to reject God's word and reject God's authority to speak on our sexuality and instead to pursue sexual immorality lived out, acted on. If not repented of, Sodom and Gomorrah and the story of Genesis 19 shows us what happens. If not repented of and, and fought against, shows us what lies down that path. Destruction. While at the same time, passages like 1 Corinthians 6 show us what lies down the path when repentance is embraced, when it is taken, God's gracious salvation turn from and not turn to the temptation. So one final word. What if that's you? And you fail. Okay, so a pause there before I talk about the fail. What if that's you? Let me just suggests that you refrain from defining yourself as that's me. As in, that's what is my identity. That's who I am. The reason being, think about this for a second. The world's definition of all these things, the world has a lot vested in these attractions and temptations being unchangeable, sunk into you, and who you are, because that's then the basis on which we can claim all kinds of other rights. The world's view is that can't be changing. That must be who you are. And notice that the Bible's view, it doesn't really matter. It could be unchanging or it can change. It doesn't really matter because temptations, attractions, some of them come and go. Some of them are hardwired into us. It doesn't really matter. The Bible tells us what's right and wrong. We could go either way. And so what I'm about to say here does not come from bias towards my own position. But let me encourage you to hold off on defining yourself as that's who I am. Because lots of our feelings come and go. And it's worth noting the rise in this identity as culture all around us has begun to champion it. Ever gone on the internet and looked at symptoms and discovered that you had a disease? <laughs> and then found that you didn't? You look, oh, cotton mouth, yeah, a little bit of a headache. I'm a little bit dizzy. I have been kind of off a little. I must have. And they say it's really prevalent these times, these times. I must be 
I'm being a little humorous there, but we've all done that. And there's a lot going on in the world right now that says if you feel attracted to the same sex, that must be because your identity is you are same-sex attracted. It might just be that you are attracted to same-sex friendships like we all are made for. We are designed, we are made to have close friends with people of our same sex. That's right and appropriate. Not sexual, but intimate. We're made for that. There's no need to redefine that as, therefore, that's then proof that you are this or that or the other. Hold off on identifying yourself as, that's what I am. It might just be that you are seeking friendships And from some sense of loneliness, you've been saying, I need, I want, and you're drawn to, and the world is then trying to define what that means for you. No, 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 hold off on that. But what if you have failed? You hear what this is saying. You hear what I'm saying here about this, and you think, okay, yeah, but I've been same-sex tempted, same-sex attracted, and I have given into that, not just in a friendship sense, but in a sexual sense. Okay? What of you? What does that mean? Well, what does it mean for any other temptation that you failed in and sinned in? Call it sin, Believe the gospel, confess, repent, thank God for his forgiveness that has put your sin on Christ and rise up and walk in his power with him, not away from him. And when or if you fall again, then what? Believe the gospel, confess, repent, thank God for his forgiveness that has put your sin on the cross, rise up and walk after him. And then what if the Christian life is not one of becoming sinless? The Christian life is one of repentance, constantly. That's the sign that you're a Christian. I repent and I pursue him, not I am perfect and I never need him. Brothers and sisters, If you find yourself having fallen in this, repent and come to Christ thankful for forgiveness. You'll find him open-armed and beautiful because he's a God of mercy and grace, open-armed and receiving all those who come to him weary and heavy laden and they'll give you rest. The thing to be warned about here is the hardened heart that says, forget it. I know what's best. I know where my satisfaction is found and walks away. Don't do that. That's where some of the false teachers were that Jude was encountering. That's where a number of folks are today. But it must not be where we go. That's not where life lies. Which leads us to the second observation. I'm going to try to be quick here, but we are probably going to be a little long today. Submission to God's authority, not one's own, is both right and life-giving. Submission to God's authority, not one's own, is both right 
and life-giving. Verses 8 and 9 talk about how it's right, and then as we think about 10, we're going to get into the life-giving part. So verse 8, despite the examples from the past, these false teachers are doing the very same thing. And really, he levels two accusations against them again. It looks like three, perhaps, in your English translation, but the second one and the third one are actually tied together. He says, they defile the flesh, and they reject authority, blaspheming the angels. They're connected because of how Jewish teaching saw the angels as being the messengers by which God gave his law to Moses. So we don't often think about angels. We don't think of angels like this. So to kind of help us feel like what he's trying to get at here, we might say something like this, a rough equivalent. They reject God's authority, belittling and insulting spirit-filled preachers. Which is not meant to be self-serving. I'm not saying that. I'm just pointing out the pulpit. Whether it's the angels that give the law or the pulpit that gives the word. When, they, when it comes, these folks say, that is ridiculous. When they hear it from a pulpit, or when they hear it from the angels giving it to Moses, that's, that is so simple-minded, so full of archaic nonsense, that is so hurtful and so bigoted and so ignorant. And they reject God's authority by rejecting the channel through which God's authoritative word comes. And in place of God's authority in the word, it says, they rely on their dreams. Middle of verse 8. These ones claim to have received some sort of revelation to themselves, contrary to and instead of God's word. They say, I have an idea. I have an impression. I have received something and I am not going to check it with God. There is no king over me. I will do what is right in my own eyes, in my own mind. That needs to be watched for. You cut right to the chase and say, that's the warning. They will inevitably come to you and say something like, God said to me. And we've got to say, where? And when they say, here, we say, nope. Show me here. He may speak to you here, but if he speaks to you here, it'll line up with here. That's the kind of conversation we have to have. And that's not where they were. And he illustrates this with verse 9. Case in point again. The archangel Michael, one of the top most powerful angels. And again, we rarely think about angels, and we don't know this story because it's not in the Bible. But the story essentially is a setup. After Moses died, he sets it up as if the archangel Michael and the devil are debating before God the judge about who should get in Moses' body. And in the story, the devil levels the accusation against Moses, the blasphemous accusation. He was a murderer. Recalling what happened in Egypt. He was a murderer. He deserves to be destroyed. Give him to me. And Michael knows the truth, but Michael does not presume. That's, that's the point made here, right? It's right in the verse. He does not presume to pronounce. 
He knows what the right verdict is. He is discerning. We are to understand what is true. The presumption of acting as the judge is the problem. And he lets God speak and calls on God. God, you speak. We both, me included, even though I know it's right, I sit beneath you. You speak, Lord. You pronounce against the devil. That's how the angels are. That's how we are to be. But verse 10, these people say they are all spiritual, that they have a connection with God, but out of their mouths flows presumption and God-contradicting ignorance and blasphemy. So stay away from that. It's what's right. It's what's righteous. To stay beneath God and let God speak to us. To stay beneath his word and not lean into our own understanding. It's right, but I want to talk about and help us maybe think about here briefly the life-giving piece of this because what can get lost sometimes in, in the center section of Jude behind all of the kind of the firmness, what can get lost behind it is that that's set up against the alternative of a great positive. So, What I want to do here as we kind of move towards closing is I want to look at verse 10 and I want to look at what it says but then kind of realize the the inverse of it. So, verse 10. Those who hold to some sort of a new faith, some more modernized, better way of worship are in fact blaspheming all they do not understand. They cast themselves as enlightened but they're blind. And worse, rest the verse, They are destroyed by all that they do understand. That destruction is not just the verses 5, 6, and 7, like the the judicial condemnation of God, the judge sort of destruction. This is the outcome of living this way by animal instincts. That's what he says in verse 10. Like unreasoning animals, driven by urges and instinct, they are well aware of what they want and what they feel and what they're impassioned over, what they're emotionally charged for, what they lust after, and they rush to it, just like so many animals. And his point is, how tragic How unhuman. So beneath the dignity of human beings to be ruled by appetites and passions, to be destroyed by them. It's what the book of Judges got us. It's what life always gets us when we we live by what rules us in here. Wreckage happens. It is not the path to life and the truly fully human experience. Life lived like image bearers of God, like we were made to be. We were made to be holy and pure and wise and joyful and righteous and good. To know communities that are at peace and are holy. And you can't get that running after your passions. That's why the world is what the world is. 
Why the world is not and never will be heaven. It's destruction and they rush headlong into it. And the answer to the tragedy is to hold to the old faith. Once for all delivered to us. To turn from one's authority and back under God's authority. Not just because we should, but because that's where life is found. Abundant, real, full life. To submit to his word. Watch this. If I'm destroyed by running this way, life comes by running back this way, but not just by running to the law. We start there. We must start there. Because that's how God tells us what we were made for and how we are to live and what life looks like and where it can be found and which ones of our natural appetites and desires are appropriate and which ones of them are wrong and should be turned away from. The law is a lamp for our feet and a light for our path showing us where to step in pursuit of the good, blessed life. But our submission to God's authority Remember, turning away from him leads to destruction. Turning back to him, submission to his authority only starts with the law. True submission to him takes his law and moves on to his gospel like the law was always pointing us towards. To move with the law, not not instead of the law, but to move with the law It's surrendered, submissive trust to Jesus. This is God's glory. And it has always made no sense or been an open offense to the natural human mind. I turn back to Christ crucified and I find life. I submit to the authority of God and find freedom. I say no to what I really feel and I end up feeling better. That makes no sense. And so some always turn away. Be alert to that. It makes no sense. But to those of whom the Spirit enlightens, you, you see there, there is forgiveness in the cross. There is a grace that saves me and forgives me. And then there is sanctification in, in this grace that changes me and makes me new. That's God's glory. And true Christians see it as beauty and glory and wisdom and power in Christ crucified. The gospel is what sets us free from ourselves and makes us his servants called and beloved and kept, and then that's where we experience mercy and peace and love multiplied. That's where you find newness of life. And the old message. And everything new just leads to destruction. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. 
Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.